This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. Everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds, or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. Santi, the man, the myth. What's going on, man? Uh, back for another episode of Empire. We've got the weekly roundup today, talking all things Ronin uh, and m- maybe a little music NFTs, maybe a little bit of fundraising news. Uh, but before we do that, how's the week, my friend? GM, sir. No, it's doing great. Uh, you know, uh, starting to feel like spring, uh, both in crypto markets and just generally weather-wise uh, in the part of the world that I'm at. So can't complain. Nice. You're sh- you're so uh, you're so shady about your your location always. Is that be- like do do you truly think that if someone knows your location, you're gonna they're gonna hack you or what what is what is the opsec there? No, I think people know that I live in the metaverse, so I just don't make it a point. <laughs> like I I I've like you just migrate over to you can find me online. That that's where I live most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. There's um. Oh man, who is the big invest? Uh, John Pfeffer. John Pfeffer is wrote Next this KKR thing. guy. KKR guy. Yeah. He wrote this thing in 2017. It's like the institutional investors guide to valuing crypto assets. I think it was called. He went Mm -hmm. on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast, invest like the best, maybe six months ago or three months ago. And he had this good line. It was like the last line of the entire episode where he says, uh, Patrick says, what, what do you ask someone in an interview? And John says, I don't ask them. I purposefully never ask somebody where they're from because their location is the least interesting thing about someone. It's usually the first question that someone asks you, Hey, Santiago, how you doing? How's your day going? Yeah. Where are you calling in from on this zoom today? He never, he makes a point to never ask it. Like I understand humans are tribal species. I understand most people don't do it out of like, they want to like uncover stuff, but there was just so many more interesting questions. Like, Hey, what have you read lately that you find interesting? Hey, what are you thinking about? Uh, what do you change your mind on recently? Like yeah, I, I, know you most, wanna, like, I always ask people, what are you most excited about right now? Yeah, exactly. You know, like simple questions, like, of course, you don't want to go like super deep philosophical, like with everyone, because, you know, there are contexts and, you know, I don't know, but, but like given the choice, like why not open up yourself to people to have a very meaningful discussion out of the gate? And some people like, you know, is it really going to change your perception if I, if you live in Brooklyn or, you know, like, I don't know, somewhere else? Like, is this like a, it's a distraction. So you almost don't want to give yourself the possible, I do it because like we're hardwired to ask these questions for a variety of reasons. And so I try to defer judgment as much as possible. When you meet someone, invariably people ask, hey, what did you think of that person? I'm like, I don't know, like I, I had a first interaction, like I, it didn't go terribly wrong, but I'm, I'm like de- deferring judgment, I think is one of those things where over time I've just learned that it, it has much more upside. Whereas coming to jumping to conclusions really quickly, like probably doesn't serve you as well. Yeah, we have, we have four uh, values at BlockWorks: mutual trust and respect. Like, leave your ego at the door. Crypto is an industry filled with a lot of egos. Write the rules. Right? There's no playbook. We're all figuring the shit out on our own. And let's uh, just trust yourself to solve big problems and launch products and kind of make big impact on yourself. And then the third is go all in. Like, set big goals and believe in yourself and push yourself to go past whatever you thought was possible. But my favorite one is actually remain curious. And so I think. Yeah in these conversations with people, you, it's important to just pull out what people are curious about. Absolutely. Maybe I'm, I am curious. Has, have those values and principles changed over time at BlockWorks? Cause you're a much, you're a much bigger, different team than you were maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago. And when you started, have you found that those, those kind of principles have remained true and like efficient? They actually have remained very true. And it, it's interesting. So we every, once a month, we do a monthly kickoff for the entire, we do an all hands, basically. We do a monthly kickoff where we share how did the past month go and what's what's happening this upcoming month. And different, different teams share different things that happen, like marketing will share what went well on marketing, what didn't go well on marketing and what they're working uh, what, what they're trying to do this upcoming month. There are always, the first slide of the deck is always revisiting the goals for the year. There's one, there's three goals. They're all related to the business. There might be like a sales goal, an editorial goal, a marketing goal, a growth goal, whatever it is for that year. But the first goal and the most important goal, it just says culture, build a culture that we're proud of. And I think uh, that is, that's always been our overarching goal. Uh, and it's been especially important as mm-hmm. we're building this remote team, right? To, to mm-hmm. continue to build a culture that we're really proud of. 
So yeah, this is like the the you know Ben Horowitz thing. Culture is what you say. Culture is what you do, not what you say. It's a great book about it. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. So before talking about Ronan, um, so I went to this. I got invited to this uh, game. I played basketball at MSG at the Garden. Yeah, because by the way, most people don't realize, but Jason is like six four. He doesn't look too tall in in, in the podcast. It's my shoes, baby. I wear. Tall I don't know shoes. what it is. I met him in in real life, in real life, and I was shocked. I mean, the two two tallest folks in crypto are probably Cooper, Turley, right? Cooper, yeah, and you by yeah, far. Cooper's like, got me by a mile. inch or two. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so and Cooper's much better dressed than I am too. So he's got me beat on two things. Uh, but so anyways, I played, uh, I played basketball at MSG. It was a really cool experience. It was G- Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, Vayner Media, Vayner NFTs, partnered up with Coinbase and Coinbase NFTs. It's really, really cool. I posted this picture on Twitter of it, but B- Coinbase had taken over all of MSG. Uh, it was like huge Coinbase things. And we, and, and we basically just played, we played a full 40 minute game. Uh, and you know, the coaches were these like Hall of Fame Knicks players, really, really fun experience. But it, the most interesting thing for me uh, you know, Mike called me after. He said, how how'd the, how'd the game go? How, how was it? Who'd you meet? Stuff like that. I said, I didn't know a single person there. It was this entire NFT community of people. I had never met any of them. I never heard of anyone. I think of myself as being like very well networked in crypto. I know everyone in crypto. I didn't know any of these people. And my first, and, and so I ended up, I spoke with most people there and you know, the conversation obviously turns into crypto and turns into, you know, what do you do in crypto? What, what's your connection here? How'd you, how'd you, how'd you get here? Stuff like that. How'd you get invited to the game? Everybody there is either like an NFT collector, NFT investor, building something with NFTs, right? And the most interesting thing was a lot of them had come in into the, into crypto in the last six months. And my first gut, I will admit, that my first gut reaction, I was like, you guys don't know the grind. You don't know the hustle. You don't know the, the bear market of 2018 and 2019. You don't know the struggle, man. You guys like, and, not, and so that was, that was my first like gut reaction. I'll admit the second was I'd ask them what they're interested in. A lot of them, zero interest in DeFi. None of them have ever, or a lot of them had never touched DeFi. So one person didn't even know what Aave and compound was, which to me, I was like, oh my God, that's nuts. And so I was kind of like, had this kind of bad taste weirdly in my mouth. The game was awesome. And then I started following uh, a couple of them on Instagram. These pictures started going up on Instagram. They all have, not, like barely any of them are on Twitter. They all have a million followers on Instagram. There are these wow. massive, massive influencers and creators on Instagram. And I had no idea. And then it clicked, which is what Coinbase is doing and what Vayner Vayner Media and a lot of other folks are doing and just what NFTs are doing in general is you're bringing in, you're onboarding this massive group of people who have never even touched crypto. And that's when this light bulb went off for me, which is all of that, like, oh, like that frustrated gut feeling of, oh, you don't know the grind. It all went away. And I was just thinking, man, this is so fucking cool that this new this new part of crypto NFTs is onboarding the next wave of millions of people. So I just, I don't know. I just, th- I thought you'd find that interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's crazy. Like, you know, sometimes we are in our small little bubble and, <clears throat> you know, I have noticed that this kind of gut reaction where for newcomers or especially people that have been very critical of crypto in the past and somehow change their tune, like what you, a lot of times the, the reaction is, yeah, I told you so. Or what took you so long? And it's sort of, look, I understand it's validation for a lot of us that have been earlier, I'd say. But I think the the better response is just be very welcoming because, you know, like everyone starts a noob uh, in, in this industry. And so I think like, you know, uh, it's important to always be kind of welcoming of people, even though, even even if they were super critical about this. Because I, I find that like the people that have been critical perhaps the most at some point are the ones that once they change their tune, just really get it and really are passionate about it. And, you know, it's just important to like, you know, everyone's, everyone's entitled to change your mind. Like that's the yeah. beauty of, of just being intellectually curious. Yeah. I mean, it made me respect. So Mike and I jumped into crypto full time in 2017 in that, in that bull run. Like I think a lot of people did. And it just makes me respect some of the people who were really welcoming to us in those early days, like Ryan Selkis and, and Meltem Demir, like Meltem and Jill Carlson, like some of these people who, you know, they've been around for a lot longer than we had. And I can only imagine that they were just thinking, man, look at these scrubs 
coming into crypto. They don't know the grind of 2013. They don't know the grind of 2015. They, did, they didn't go through Gox, you know? Like they didn't go through Mount Gox. They did. Oh my God. They didn't even have any Bitcoin on Mount Gox. They don't know the grind. And now all mm-hmm. this whole 2017 cohort is has has built this amazing industry as well. And I can only imagine, I'm just so excited for what the 2021 cohort is going to do over the next couple mm-hmm. of years. Yeah. Yeah. Super. Yeah. Jason Choi actually had this tweet uh, earlier today. Uh, he said, I noticed that a lot of Web2 founders who come into Web3, what they lack in crypto native, like their crypto nativity, they more than make up for in rigor in validating product market fit, organizational scaling and process, arguably more important long-term than being in crypto long-term. So I want to flip this into a question and say, when you're investing in companies and you're kind of talking to founders, how do you weight what is more important here? Is it your ability to scale teams, organizational scaling, validating product market fit, building a culture, or is it this like understanding of crypto, knowing that, you know, it's so nuanced and so tough to become like a crypto native person? Yeah, like gun to my head, I'd probably invest behind very talented web two builder. Really? Engineer. Yeah. Than a crypto native one. Really? Mm-hmm. Why? Because 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 I'll tell them I'll help you on the on the crypto side, and the best combinations are those. Because hmm. that I mean I just know where it, you know designing tokens is what I do. I like to do that. I like to think about that incentive design and all that stuff. But like, I think, I think like given the choice, yeah, and is especially more true in like in gaming, uh, where increasingly recently I've every team that I've invested in are like super talented Web two guys. Like I'm telling you, like guys that were very senior at like early guys and like designing Angry Birds and Candy Crush and some of the like the the best games out there. And I look at that and I said, like, and they're excited to build. And you know, I I, I would invest behind them more so than like perhaps a more crypto native uh, founder because it, it requires skill. Like like I feel like the hardest thing that a founder does is is hire talented people. And I think you need to have done something really powerful in, in a prior life, meaning in web two land, like it's easier to hire people. If you're like the guy that like designed X and Y and built X or Y, like just now before this podcast, I was talking to a founder of, of this company called Canary, which is they do like webcams. Um, and I've been using the camera for such a long time. I give it to people when they have babies, like to monitor the room and all this stuff, like cr- amazing. And now he's building something in crypto. And I know like the guy just, when I talked to him, he said, listen, I've already validated the market. I've talked to X and Y and all these different stakeholders and they all kind of are screaming at me to build a product. I think that that chip is like, comes from a guy that's built something before. And maybe like I'll say, I like investing in repeat founders more so. Um, And a lot of times like it's hard to find like a repeat founder in crypto. You know what I mean? Like most of the time it's their first run. Uh, Unless you have like, you know, Maki and perhaps like, you know, like um, a few other folks. But for the most part, uh, it's really cool to see someone that has built a Web2 company and then goes at it again. Or another example, this is the Immutable team, for instance. They were doing <clears throat> the Gods Unchained cards, battler cards early on. Out of that frustration of understanding how difficult it was to scale in an L1 environment, they went out and built Immutable, which is an L2 using Starkware optimized for creating a better experience for users. And so like, I love that, right? Because it's a unique insight. And so, yeah, what I'm trying to say is repeat founders is great because you get to leverage all their knowledge and know-how, but it's not always true, right? You can't like hold yourself to, to, to these kind of principles. Cause like, for instance, in DeFi, a lot of founders like, Hayden, for instance, built Uniswap. He took a concept that Vitalik had published in a blog post and said, someone should probably just build this and built it. But he had no coding and no finance experience. He wasn't like a Wall Street veteran or anything. In fact, most people from Wall Street, even Sam's of the world would say, this is never going to work because an order book model is more efficient than AMM. And so like sometimes a lot of experience tries gets in the way. And you know this, but like a lot of some of the best kind of more breakthrough innovations have come from people that are outside that are allow yeah. themselves to think in more creative ways and just venture out. And so sometimes, but you know, a lot of people pass on Uniswap. And so anyways, that's my roundabout answer. 
Let's get into some of the news. I think biggest news of the week is Ronin, uh, the Ronin hack. So let me just give a quick overview for people who missed this or maybe didn't have the time to dive too deep into this. Um, so basically, here's my understanding of everything. Correct me if I'm wrong, Santi. All right, so you've got Sky Mavis. Sky Mavis is the game developer behind Axie Infinity. Uh, Ronin, their network that they've kind of created, Ronin Network, was exploited for about $600 million, which the actual numbers were 173 1,600 ETH and 25 and a half million USDC. This makes it the largest hack in crypto's history. As background, users deposit crypto into the Ronin bridge uh, on Ethereum and then are given kind of the equivalent like IOUs on the Ronin network. So in this case, no individual Ronin user was hacked. My understanding is that all of the users and kind of the Ronin system now basically just have these under collateralized IOUs. Um, definitely check me if I'm wrong there. And the exploit actually was discovered on Tuesday, but the actual hack was six days before. It was on the 23rd, which is interesting that it took that long for this to get uncovered. And the exploit was was finally discovered after this one user was unable to draw 5,000 ETH from the bridge. Uh, on the news, Roan, which is the native token of the Ronin network, went down like 20%. Axie went down 7%. Uh, SLP went down maybe 7 or 8%. And I think one of the other important things is that Unlike some of the other bridge exploits related to smart contract bugs, if you remember the wormhole hack, obviously, that was like $300, $325 million exploit. This exploit was a hack of private keys in a multi-sig setup. And the way that the Ronin bridge was set up is they've got this five of nine validator bridge, meaning the funds are secured by a set of these nine secret keys, right? Any five of those, if they're in agreement, can move money around. And so basically the hacker... Uh, in this case, Sky Mavis, I think one of the flaws is that Sky Mavis owned or operated four of the nine keys. So the hacker was able to compromise the four Sky Mavis validators and then utilized a secondary attack vector where they once they controlled the Sky Mavis nodes, they could utilize an API to request these arbitrary signatures from the Axie down node. So that's kind of that's kind of a little bit of an overview. Over, I think 20 million of the ETH has been sent from the hacker's wallet to various addresses, different exchanges, FTX, Wobi, Binance, Crypto.com. That's kind of, and, you know, I'm sure the, that number is changing really quickly. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday around noon. Episode drops on Friday. So that, anyways, that's a little bit of the update right now. Before giving my thoughts, I want to hear your thoughts. What's your take on this situation? Yeah, uh, well, I think you covered it fairly well. Um, unfortunate. Um, I don't think it's the end of Axie. I think the community, based on what I've seen, has, you know, responded you know, in a very positive way, supporting the team. I am left wondering, like, how the hell did this happen? Like, it was like, I don't know if it was a setup issue, because when you're setting up these validator nodes, I think the five out of the seven, right, that were compromised were all the internal ones. And I think it was like all the, most of the internals and then one external. And a lot of it was like, based on a post by PsychOut, which is Alex, uh, one of the co-founders of Axie, he said it was a combination of, I think something a bad setup in December of last year and a social engineering attack, meaning somehow the keys got compromised. I don't know. It's like, I want to understand how the hell this happened. And like, it feels to me like, okay, grow the validator set much more, right? Like just, just, I don't know. You could have like hidden these keys and given it to like your grandmother and probably wouldn't have been hacked. Like, you know what I mean? Like just, just, it's pretty shocking. Like you have that amount of value and I'm not going to, I'm going to be critical, but I'll also like, I sympathize. Like I don't want to jump to conclusions, but it is kind of surprising that you have that amount of value at stake and you constantly, the assumption should be like, we did a trusted setup. We trust people in the team. like, no, it's like just constantly do penetration testing. Like this is something when I was running validator nodes way back in the day, like it was just, you constantly have to be paranoid. And, and so I, I don't know, like, uh, maybe we should have these guys on because it is kind of, yeah, uh, it, it's embarrassing actually. Yeah. It, it, I don't know if you disagree here. I don't want to like come to be super harsh about this, but like how the hell do like all the internal validators get compromised and then you don't realize like who the hell is doing monitoring for this stuff? You know what I mean? Like you do continuous monitoring, continuous penetration testing. Like, and so anyways, a lot of the conversations I've had this week and I'll go back to it again. I talked in the prior episode of insurance. Also, there's an interesting idea. I think it was Hasu or someone who said, hmm, maybe we should have like delayed withdrawals. C commensurate to as you want to withdraw more funds, you have a delay function. 
right? Like there should be kind of an alert, right? You have like pager duty. You should have an alert. If someone wants to withdraw the entire fucking funds, like, hey, maybe get pinged. Like, I don't know, like shocking. <laughs> but, you know, I hope Axie recovers. I think the community is super strong. I don't think it's the end of it. Like, you know, a lot of people are affected by this. So I truly sympathize with that. But as an industry, we can do better. Yeah, I, I think I have a nicer take than you, um, which is that, I don't know, just built, I mean, hmm, what is my take here? I think my but, take okay, is Okay, don't you disagree? Like, how, how, how did the, like, how does the social engineering attack function where all the validators, the internal validators get compromised? And why didn't you think about, like, decentralizing further? No, that, so that's ridiculous. That, that, that's ridiculous. I, I completely agree with that. I think, so let me not talk about the hack for a second here. Every, every company goes through ridiculous ups and downs. I think that now the, now that token, that equity is liquid from day one. So there are just so many more people that are, uh, that basically care and are incentivized to care, uh, about, about that. And like all of these issues are kind of at the forefront. All right, friends, quick break to share some exciting DeFi updates from Avalanche, which is one of the fastest and the most eco-friendly smart contract platforms out there. If you haven't been keeping up with the DeFi innovation on Avalanche, it is madness. There are new DeFi protocols launching on Avalanche on a daily basis. The ecosystem is getting pretty incredible. I thought I'd call out like three different projects that I'm keeping an eye on right now. The Platypus Wars are heating up on the new stable swap protocol. Dexalot is launching soon. They've got this unique price discovery mechanism and an on-chain limit order book. I think that's pretty interesting. Uh, and then also Trader Joe just launched a brand new set of tokenomics to participate in token launches, stablecoin farming, and governance tokens. Really, really interesting innovation coming out of the DeFi space on Avalanche. Uh, and then also just beyond DeFi innovation, there's a study I thought you guys might find interesting the Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute assessed the carbon efficiency of six of the leading networks. They found that Avalanche consumes 35,000 times less energy than Ethereum and 200,000 times less than Bitcoin. Obviously, go do your own research. There's this study uh, from the Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute that is CCRI. You can go read it uh, on your own. But if you guys want to build DeFi products, if you want to use DeFi and want to do it in an eco-friendly way, do it on Avalanche. Now, Let's get back to the show. I think, um, look, I don't want to speak out of turn. I do want more insight into what Alex tweeted. And, you know, um, they've been working with a lot of cybersecurity personnel. I hope, I think the optimist me says they're going to probably recover a lot of these because a lot of the funds got sent to FTX and Huobi. And I think there was really overwhelming support from the industry saying if any of these funds circulate through any of our whatever um, exchanges, we'll clamp down on them. So that was good to see. Hopefully, you know, the good thing about it, all of this is it hacks if you're a hacker it, it continues to become really really hard to actually get away with this stuff you eventually get caught right and so hopefully my my scenarios are a lot of these funds in a best case get recovered and then everyone is made whole very quickly in another not so great cases some funds get recovered and then the whole you gap either through raising equity at the sky mavis entity from a16z's of the world that are prior investors and or you issue some sort of like IOU, like Leo, like Bit, what is it? Uh, was it Bitfinet? Not Bitfinet. It was, uh, it was um, the Leo token, I think represents a claim on the hack Bitcoin yeah. from this exchange, I believe. So you issue kind of an IOU and then over time with some of the rewards and incentives, you kind of make whole these, these, these users. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting how the community reacts. Um, look, for a while, like it does pose a question like, you know, where on the news, I think a lot of other games rallied hard, like Step In and Illuvium, some others, especially Step In. But it's going to be interesting what these users, um, how the broader community reacts. So far, I think it's been super why did the, Why did those tokens do so well on this news? Is it because people are leaving <clears throat> Axie and there's capital that just wants to fly into no, other metaverse assets? I don't want to extrapolate. I mean, I do think that like SLP, like if you look at the earnings of Axie, they really kind of plateaued in December. Yeah. Um, and it does... You know, I'm excited about other games that are like, you know, more immersive uh, and you know where I stand. I think, uh, you know, something like Alluvium. And so I think like more and more people are just, you know, understanding that the category is bigger than Axie. And so maybe rotated away from that. Um, I thought the price would collapse much, much more, the token, but it's been holding up fairly well from what I 
can see. Um, you know, the, the, it's important to say Sky maybe has generated, I think, one and a half billion of revenue last year. So uh, potentially some, I don't know, like if they could fit, like foot this bill partially themselves. I don't know what they've done with those. Um, again, it's revenue, not profit, but nonetheless. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, the key here is it's a second tweet of Alex. It says, this was a social engineering attack combined with human error. I want to understand what the social engineering attack is and the human error is. And so before we get more intel, I don't want to jump to conclusions, but. Yeah, yeah. I think Alex, uh, so Alex is their, the co-founder and COO of Axie and Sky Mavis. I think Alex also um, committed to kind of vowed to compensate the, all of the victims if I'm right here. And so this makes me wonder, I'm, I might be wrong about that. I thought I saw that. I thought, I thought I saw that on Twitter, but that makes me wonder who steps in here, right? Because when you think about the wormhole hack, uh, jump, jump obviously came in and backstopped it because, uh, and so who, who backstops this, right? If you can't get all the funds back, obviously they're going to work with Binance and FTX and Huobi and crypto.com and all these places to get this back. But who backstops this? Is it Andreessen stepping into backstop it? Is it someone like Delphi because they're, you know, very big into Axie and I think they helped do the uh, token design for Axie. Is it someone else related to Axie? What, what, what happens here if they can't actually return the 600 million in ETH? Who backstops this, Santi? Well, I think the team comes up with a structure to do it because if you don't, then it really kind of severs and you probably lose a subset of the community. Yeah. And so you probably commit to doing it through future rewards and token inflation. And so yeah. kind of like, I feel like that's the scenario, a combination of the scenario is probably going to be around at Sky Mavis to recapitalize it like Wormhole is doing. And then combined with some commitment to divert some fees to, to the, because everyone's affected, right? So everyone that's playing right. X is being affected. So I think that's, yeah. 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 I mean, so you make a good point about the, uh, about the withdrawals, right? Our withdrawal delays a feature or a bug in traditional markets, right? When you want to with, withdraw, if I want to withdraw like $10 million, not that I've ever actually done that, but someone's going to call you from a bank. Someone calls me and says, Hey, do you want to, do you want to withdraw $10 million? <laughs> I think it's uh, very much a feature. I <laughs> look as much as I am critical about banks. I do appreciate when my bank calls me. Yes. Yes. I still do wire transfers calls me. <laughs> to verify as as small as it may be you know it's nice because you know that like okay 30 seconds on the phone gives me peace of mind yeah that you know you're not going to you know so we should build again it's it goes back to this idea there are some there are some mechanisms in traditional web2 land and industries that we can kind of implement um safety features uh with buffers and all this stuff but again, don't necessarily, I'm not saying that they don't necessarily compromise on like, someone might push back and say, wait a minute, a, a delay might mean that someone needs to at some point verify that. So it's like actually not, it could be, it's no longer permissionless censorship resistant or yada, yada, yada. And you're like, well, to some extent. Yeah. Hmm. I think the big takeaway of this is just the, the these bridge, the bridging hacks, right? You've got, uh, who was it? Poly Network, um, Wormhole. Now this one is that we just need better bridging. We are, we need a better understanding of the security of bridges, right? Whether that's like, you know, crypto is all about transparency, but I think most people, A, have no freaking clue how these things work uh, and have no clue who's actually controlling them and who's behind them. Uh, and just, I think we need, I mean, obviously this is probably one of the hardest technological challenges going on, but even just there's this uh, account Safe Heron on Twitter that made some recommendations that I thought were really good. like. Uh, you know, the private key is, you know, for the private key, it's best to eliminate a single point of risk. It seemed kind of absurd that the Axie team had these, or the Sky Mavis team had four under one. Um, so you could do something like MPC, right? Multi-party compute. Uh, it's good to fragment the private key and disperse it into like multiple hardware isolated chips for protection. There should probably be more strategic approval and protection for large scale capital operations to just ensure that you have someone who's in charge of this and like is informed and confirmed of the change of funds as soon as possible. And then, yeah, I think you made a really good point. Like the, the theft occurred on March 23rd. It took six days. There needs to be better service and fund monitoring here. So, yeah. Um, anything else? Any other thoughts on, uh, on Ronan? No, you know, um, again, 
uh, I sympathize and uh, hopefully this gets resolved in the, in the best way possible, mitigate loss and pain for a lot of users. So, uh, and best of luck to the Axie team. Honestly, I mean, I know they're working around the clock and, and grinding it out. So, you know, you live and you learn and, you know, I don't think it's the end of it and, and I think they'll come out stronger. So best of luck to them and, and hopefully, uh, you know, this gets resolved quickly yeah. and we move on. Yeah, I agree. And the last point is just why are we talking about bridges so much and what, what's going on? Why is this happening all of a sudden? Well, all the TVL, all the total value used to be on one chain. It was all on Ethereum. Ethereum had like 99% of the value uh, pre, let's call it January 2021. In 2020, ETH had pretty much all the value in the industry. And now ETH has ETH is down to roughly 50% of the TVL, maybe 50 to 60% of the TVL. Terra's got a good chunk. Uh, actually, Binance Smart Chain has a good chunk. Uh, Avalanche has a good chunk. Solana ha has a good chunk. And so that's why, and there's amazing applications getting built on all these chains. And so that's one of the reasons why these bridges have come up so quickly, um, but mm -hmm. possibly scaled too quickly. So yep. the next thing I, would, I just want to, uh, I think narratives right now, there's a, an extreme narrative exhaustion going on in the industry, but as always, narratives can take you by surprise and usually happen faster than you know. Uh, and last longer than you'd think. And when you think that you're too late, usually you're too early already in crypto. And so I think one narrative that I'm just watching, I know you like this, the, uh, what is it? The move to earn thing. We're bringing the step in, the step in founder on the show. I full disclosure. Yeah. Early investor invest. advisor. So I'm, I'm, I got to admit I'm skeptical, but I feel like a real middle of the bell curve kind of guy being skeptical on this. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to question it's it. It's good to be skeptical. It's not going to be middle of the bell curve, though. Uh, all right. So one one narrative I think I want to get your take on is music music NFTs. Um, they feel primed to absolutely rip right now. Snoop Dogg, first real A-list person to drop on Sound XYZ. Audius has 6 million monthly active users. Uh, Catalog is great for one of ones. You know, Sound, uh, Sound XYZ is this like release platform. You can buy like one of 25s. You've got Royal, did two big drops so far. They've got another one coming soon. And it feels like we're just early innings of the ability to tokenize all aspects of music and collect it in the same way that we've started to do that with, uh, with art. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, you kind of highlighted this as a really interesting point, but all aspects of a song can be tokenized down to their smallest unit. So as you're, you're listening to something on chain, the royalties flow back to all of those creators. So like, what if the like little snare could be tokenized and anyone who uses that in GarageBand on like a crypto native GarageBand that and then publishes on chain can actually get the royalties coming back for them. Maybe it's too optimistic. Obviously the kind of supply chain of that is incredibly tough, but if it's all on chain, I don't see why it couldn't happen. Yeah, I mean, uh, I haven't collected music NFTs uh, yet. Um, I have backed artists, like musicians, that have issued NFTs, like Marshmallow, for instance, and uh, and Justin Blau. Uh, I think Justin, in one of his drops, initially he was one of the first ones to embed music in the in his NFTs. And Marshmallow did too. If you bought like this, he released the song first to NFT holders. Now everyone else could go and listen to the song, but you kind of held the first kind of NFT that represented like the genesis of the release of the song. So that was pretty cool. Um, I, I think so. Like I'm, I'm not, I know like Jesse from actually variant tried to like do somehow tokenize like his, his startup that I think ended up being acquired by Spotify. Like they try to like bring a lot of this stuff on chain. It was difficult because, you know, IP is, is very tricky and com convoluted and royalty management can be very difficult. But just pure song, like the simple cases, as you said, I do think that it's going to be a big category. Someone like Snoop already doing it. Artists just, the business model is they go to the record label and say, hey guys, I want to issue an NFT with this song and I'm going to issue 10,000, fractionalize it. And so, I don't know, it would be interesting to see the combinations of what you actually slice it up into. You see, uh, slice the entire song into unique NFTs, and those represents the first time that anyone can ever listen to the song is by like this date, and you just have kind of like a, a a memento of sorts that says you were there and you bought it and you listened to the song and you can listen right. to it. Like that's pretty cool, I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. What do you think of it? Here, here's the biggest counter to everything about music NFTs. With NFTs that are artwork, uh, there is a built-in distribution mechanism and marketing, which is PFPs, right? PFPs, you change your profile picture on Twitter. That was the biggest marketing 
uh, tool for these NFTs with music NFTs, you don't have that. You're actually, you're actually asking someone to go in and change where they listen to their music. So it's like if it's with NFTs, you're able to showcase them on Twitter and in these like digital frames, right in your house or wherever, right. You can post them on your Instagram with music NFTs. You can't really showcase them anywhere. And so the utility becomes listening to them and collecting them, which collecting is is great, but you're forcing someone to then leave Spotify, which is a really tough thing to get someone to do. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Although I do think that, say I really like, you know, your DJing skills. And I think that, like I have certain friends that I know that are really on, when I want to get a new song, I'm like, hey, what are you listening to? And I follow them on like right. Spotify. And so like... What's this stuff? Like, I think the founder, no, that's Shopify. I haven't heard Spotify and what their plans are in crypto, but like, what's to stop them from enabling like, like a gallery, like the same way I could, once I follow you, I see also your NFTs, music NFTs. And, and like, I don't know, maybe I need like a, a certain code to listen to it, to unlock the content or just it's free. And so I can listen to it and like, you still track, like if people listen to the song, you still pay the artist, right? But they now go through and see maybe an NFT, which is like like MTV built an empire out of this, right? Like music videos. Like people love, you remember the time where like you would love to see the yeah. music video? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't do it anymore, but like there was, a, there was a whole like moment in my life where I was like looking at music videos. I was like, oh, it's so cool. So maybe you do that with NFTs. Maybe that's a, you bring that back. Here, here's where I think, here's where I think it gets really cool. So I also am very into house music. I think like you are as well. And I know we both love Avicii. Um, I think that you could have levels for artists inside of a platform. So imagine if, uh, here's a platform that I want to exist and would love to fund it, right? It is something where there's like levels one through 99 for an artist. Every artist in the world is on it. And anything that you do that shows your kind of affinity and, and affection for the artist levels you up. I collect, let's use a, let's use Marshmallow. I, I go to one of Marshmallow's shows, right? I'm leveling up. So I just leveled up from like level one to level five. I collect the new Marshmallow drop, new song. I just leveled up from level five to level eight, right? And then what Marshmallow does at his, for his fans is he unlocks different things depending on what level you are. Oh, you want this merch? You have to be level 20. Oh, you want to get in the VIP section at my concert? You have to be level 75 or higher. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that's, a, and then you, and then what it does is like, I don't know if you've ever been to like these big music festivals, but I used to go kind of back in the day, like you go to like Tomorrowland or Ultra or something like this. And you've got a hundred thousand people there who all love the same thing, but you have no idea who kind of, who loves what and and like what, like, is this their first time going to one of these things or like, are they like an OG? And it'd be cool if you could turn to the person to your right and be like, oh my God, you're level, you're level 70 for Avicii. Like I also, oh man, oh my God. And that's like an instant bond. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, the artists now probably have a big incentive, as you said, maybe it's the fuck you were playing basketball with. Like, I think the connection and the bond with the, with the fan base is stronger or just get stronger with NFTs. Because they just chart your entire progression and your affiliation and, and support for an artist. And that's pretty cool. Um, and and so, again, people always want to, at the end of the day, like NFTs, whether it be just traditional images or music or writings or whatever, digital property rights writ large, there's just a way for you to like have a digital footprint in a way that no one can like dispute, right? And it's pretty cool. Cause you can curate your identity and it, I think music is super powerful. I think everyone in the world loves music, whatever genre they might listen to. Uh, not everyone's going to obviously buy an NFT, but, uh, yeah, it'd be kind of cool. Yep. Um, yeah, I completely agree. I think the last note on music NFTs is a little bit of alpha. Not, I don't, I don't know anything, but just seeing what's happened with other platforms in crypto, none of these platforms have a token yet. Um, Sound XYZ, Catalog, Royal, I would imagine that they are all going to do an airdrop or at least one or two of them do an airdrop at some point based on how, based on your activity on the platform in the same way that ENS did it and Uniswap did it and a lot of other folks did it. You got to imagine they, they, they do some sort of airdrop. So if you've never actually collected something, if you've never collected a music NFT, I'd, uh, even you Santi, I'd, I'd recommend you actually do something on like Sound or Catalog or Royal. Okay. There's a breaking news actually, just... 20 minutes ago 
Um, this guy, Patrick Hansen, reported, he said, breaking the econ and live committees of the EU parliament voted in favor of the FTR compromise DNE, the crackdown on unhosted wallets. Uh, entire regulation draft to be voted on later today, but we'll certainly go through. Uh, this is interesting. I, I'm just reading it live, so we should link it to the show notes so people can like follow this progression. Apparently, the formal vote's going to go on later next week on Tuesday. But, you know, unhosted wallets and how do you regulate them or not has been a hot debate that keeps coming back. Uh, it's uh, So this could be pretty pretty interesting. Mm. All right, I'll, I'll link this. I don't, I don't know enough to talk about this, but yeah, I'll yeah, link no, this. Yeah, no, I don't. Notes. I'm just saying it because, yeah, yeah. you know, just to point to people to it, and then we should discuss it in, in more detail next week. Yeah, that's great. I mean, there is something actually in the States happening on the regulatory side as well, which is the security... Uh, security dealer definition, right? There's this new proposal on, what is today, the 31st? So Monday or Tuesday on the 28th by the SEC, there's this new proposal by the SEC that is trying to redefine what it means to be a securities dealer. So the new term, and I think this is important for crypto folks because the new term would include people and businesses that use automated and algorithmic trading technology to execute trades and provide liquidity. And there's this uh, it's actually it's aimed at electronic traders, I think, of the U.S. Treasuries. But there's this footnote buried in the in this like big 200-page text that says the proposed rule would also apply to crypto that have been deemed to be securities. So from this proposal, the SEC could then argue that all AMM LPs are unregistered dealers. Being an unregistered dealer is a felony offense under securities law. Mm-hmm. So this is something that has not gotten much attention, but I think is uh is a pretty is a pretty interesting proposal by the sec we've got uh we've got jay clayton uh, an episode with jay clayton that goes live on monday so folks should definitely tune into that uh other other news and then we can wrap this up blockchain.com big shout out to our friends at blockchain.com they raised a round at 14 billion dollars the company says they have 37 million verified users 82 million wallets that have been created they are a real og one of the oldest running companies in crypto uh very excited for the team at blockchain.com excited to see what they do uh, at this new valuation of 14 billion other news macro strategy which is a subsidiary of micro strategy uh, has closed a $255 million Bitcoin collateralized loan with Silvergate to purchase Bitcoin. Basically, took out a big loan, $200 million, to purchase Bitcoin. This is interesting because it's an there's an FDIC-insured bank with Silvergate loaning $205 bucks to someone against their Bitcoin to buy more Bitcoin, right? You're l- lending against someone's Bitcoin to buy Bitcoin. This is a massive monetary experiment by Michael Saylor, but it's fun to see him execute it. Uh, kind of no different than uh, Terra or LFG. Yeah, I mean, if you uh, if you guys missed the episode that went live yesterday with Terra, what is it? So this launches Friday, Terra goes live yesterday, Thursday, yesterday. Yeah, Go listen to the episode with Doquan. Really good episode. He is also giving Michael Saylor a run for his money to go buy some Bitcoin. Uh, other news, Sequoia, Andreessen, FTX, co-led a $135 million Series A plus investment in Layer Zero. Um, as a massive Series A plus, are you an investor in Layer Zero? I just got to assume. Yeah, you are. I am. I actually know the team quite well, and super excited about what they're building. Yeah, we've got Brian and Maki coming on the podcast soon, so we're looking yep. forward to that. We'll explain Layer. Can you give like a one or two sentence on Layer Zero? Yeah, basically, it makes it, it stitches together different blockchains, and in one transaction, you can execute like you can use Uniswap and just hop to another protocol, and like you route the order in a very efficient way and use multi- different chains. And so it's 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 called layer zero because obviously it sits below and it, like all the layer ones. And in a nutshell, kind of very layman terms, it it makes it's very. I think we're entering a stage of Web three where it's very user centric, where it's very seamless to operate cross like across chains. And you know the user is going to think about a particular use case, meaning I want to do this, and then you just click of a button and layer zero takes care of the rest. It's going to route to the most efficient place and do all the different hops that need to happen. Um, and so it's, it, I think it's very um, kind of, a, it's sort of the best technology makes things seamless. And it's it sort of like a magical experience. So uh, they, it, there's a lot of like technical, um, you know, like nuances that go behind the scenes, but the user doesn't really care, right? But you do care about just creating a very seamless experience for people. Uh, that doesn't require them, you know, interacting with different wallets and or chains and just doing that themselves. This is just abstracting away all that and just making it super easy for people to interact. 
Interesting. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to the chat with Brian and Brian and Maki, the founders. Um, more, more, a little more news on the week, and then we can wrap this up. Is mm-hmm. that uh, Andreessen co-led a Series D in Nova Labs? If Nova Labs, if that doesn't sound familiar, it's because uh, they just rebranded from Helium. So you guys might know the decentralized wireless pioneer Helium. They just rebranded to Nova Labs, raised a big chunk of change to. Um, to just kind of expand their, yeah, to expand their network. Right now, there are over 500,000 Helium hotspots, including one in my office, about two feet away right now, uh, that cover over 50,000 cities across 168 countries. Uh, it's just amazing to see what they've done. This is yeah. a good example. We were talking about at the beginning of the conversation about these Web2 founders. Helium was started by one of the OGs at Napster. Um, back in the day, was one of the three founders of Helium. And Amir over there, their current CEO, has just done uh, such a good job of building that team. And it's really exciting to see what they've done. Yeah, the last thing I'll say on this is, so building a mesh of decentralized kind of towers has been something that has been tried before. And when I first met the Helium team, I saw the idea and said, you know what, like, no, it's like it's like stable coins now, right? Decentralized stable coins. You're like, there's just littered with a graveyard of projects that have tried to do this before. And I ended up passing on Helium. Uh, Multicoin did that. And so I, I'm an LP of Multicoin, so they captured that alpha for me. Thank you, Kyle and Tushar. Um, but what I will say is it is interesting, that experience, kind of my learning from that was there are certain business models that are uniquely enabled by Web3 that force you to reconsider certain business models that didn't work in a Web2 context, but will work in a Web3 context because you have better incentive models and, dis- and perhaps build easier distribution. And so that that was kind of my learning for Helium because it's kind of hard to scale out and build like this mesh of, of, of hotspots, if you will, but they've done it quite successfully. Uh, it took time, but I think they, they're at a point where like, you know, the density is there and the flywheel is there, the and 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 so it, it now you're seeing like miners, if you will, on top of helium to like, you know, professional people like install these hotspots to earn four times more helium than the average mom and pop kind of like hotspot, which is fascinating. Now, like that's I think a telling sign of like a project kind of hitting like escape velocity in many ways, like where you have other people built on top and like professional operators, like in the same yeah. way industrial miners are now mining Bitcoin and whatever. Yeah. Helium is so cool because it's the first time. I think there are a lot of folks who are, don't like crypto and they say, what is all this stuff good for? And you, and now you say, well, you've got someone who's actually competing with Verizon, right? Taking right, on right. these big, these big kind of 4G, 5G networks. Yeah. Uh, and, Especially and like, uh, in places like uh, nobody likes, know, right? No, nobody likes like, Verizon. E- yeah. Even in places like, uh, you know, Ukraine and uh, you remember like yeah. the Arab Spring, like internet goes down really quickly. It gets censored. And obviously you can try to use VPN, but that's not necessarily always feasible. But like, this is pretty cool. You know, again, like the the key parts of the stack, we keep decentralizing, but one of them was storage, right? Not not storing stuff on chain, big, big, big red flag, big problem. I think we're starting to solve that with certain decentralized like file storage solutions like Arweave and Filecoin and Saya. Um, and, and the other one is, of course, like access to the internet, um, like to the network. It's huge. Like start, st- what is it? Elon Musk, start, start, start Starlink. Yeah, I heard Starlink. really good things about that. My, Mike, Mike's parents got Starlink. They're, uh, yeah, they're I've heard in it's amazing. the middle of the like, country and yeah. they got it and they like it. Yeah. That's obviously satellite tech, but yeah, anyways, uh, really cool. Congrats to the Helium team. And, and, you know, I think they've done incredible. And, and to your point, I think it's one of those, like really, it becomes a case study for people that are skeptical to say, just look at Helium, right? It's, it's, it's like a very tangible, very, right. like the utility is there. So it's great to see that. Yeah. Um, the last thing is just an update on this breaking news from from 10 minutes ago. So Coindesk just posted, Justin, European lawmakers have voted to limit anonymous crypto transactions and okay. enforce KYC rules on unhosted wallets. There we go. So it actually did go through. I was It was this Thursday. It's not final, final. It, did, I think it is not passed as law yet, right? It, it's not. But you need no. to pass There is stages. a period where like there is individuals. And, and it'll and, be like, challenged, I'm sure. Yeah, it'll be it challenged. It can be. And, it can be. Yeah. We'll see. But definitely something that we should... Uh, put on a radar for everyone out there in the industry to to discuss. And obviously, um, how do you yeah. how do you enforce KYC on unhosted wallets? I guess if you know, you have to know the history of the wallet and its interactions. If a, if a, if an unhosted I think if you wallet try to has use ever interacted, like, mm-hmm. yeah, with a hosted wallet, then it's technically yeah. traceable. Yeah, it puts a question like I think I think when I was when this happened in the U.S., uh, the traveling rule. I think Mnuchin tried to pass through midnight ruling was. 
<clears throat> if you send any funds to an unhosted wallet, you need a kind of your exchange will say, wait a minute, no, you can't. You need KYC that or who are you sending it to provide some sort of proof verification. If you try to send back from an unhosted wallet back to an exchange, you also need to do the same. And or perhaps more problematic is how does that actually get enforced in a context where you're swapping in an AMM pool? Like, do you need a KYC every single liquidity provider? Like, it, it, it's one of those things where like regulation, I understand kind of the the, the notion behind it, but uh, in practice, it becomes difficult and problematic, especially for DeFi. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, hmm. I think it becomes a real pain in the ass for the exchanges and for the users. And they, they actually end up losing a lot of users and it just adds a bunch of costs because you have to force, yeah, you have to add true. extra steps, right? Whenever you withdraw or deposit them. I mean, I don't understand that the European Union has been really advocate of data privacy and like information privacy. I'm like, isn't this kind of antithetical to that? Like I understand KYC. It's a, narr now, it's like, a narrative violation for sure. Yeah. It, uh, <laughs> tell me why it's not. Anyone out there in the ether listening, tell us why it's not. We'd love to have you on the pod. Maybe we have European Parliament members come here who voted yeah. in favor of this, and we'd love to have a discussion around it, please. Yeah, cool. Santi, man, this is awesome. Good chat. Good stuff. Hope you have a good weekend. Good uh, rest of your Friday. You too. It's great to be here. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back next week. We have a ton of really good um, ton of really good speakers um, um, you know, that we've been interviewing and uh, airing next week and, and the following weeks. The yeah. lineup is too, insane. It keeps getting quick, call to actions for you one if you don't have your permi for permissionless we just dropped a bunch of nfts go snag one uh the public sale is thursday at 4 p.m which is after this episode is actually getting recorded so it's gonna be friday don't know how the public sale is gonna go if they're fully sold out jump on OpenSea. you can find them permies make sure you get the right one uh and then the next thing is uh subscribe to the podcast <laughs> if you don't already subscribe to the podcast uh subscribe to discord Apple, spotify jump into the discord say drop a gm to santi and me we're hanging out in the empire discord so all right guys we will uh see you all next week all right sir thank you so much thanks everyone right. for listening see you next time take care